just a question and answer period. Uh, but first, there, uh, I've been doing my best to keep up with all the notes, and I'm just too shy of finishing. So I'm going to, they're questions. So I'll try to start with those. And then um, whatever you want to talk about is fine. Uh, questions having to do with bringing the practice back home are welcome now. Uh, a number of you have asked questions during the groups, uh, and we've kind of pushed them aside because we didn't want to take your mind off what we're doing here. But I think uh, it's fine if there are questions uh, about uh, taking the practice home. And I would like to say a few words about that. But first, let me to make sure that I cover these. One has to do with understanding the difference between mind and mind states. Or is there any? Um, this is a language uh, thing, and uh, very often I would say there isn't. Uh, mind states uh, are the visitors, that which uh, come and go, which we've been talking about a great deal during this week. Uh, and sometimes we refer to it as mind. Now, in sometimes in some of uh, Buddhist philosophy, which has been picked up in different schools, uh, you'll hear mind and the nature of mind compared. The nature of mind, uh, mind would be the content, and the nature of mind would be emptiness. Sometimes it's characterized as uh, the cognizing power of emptiness. There's the clear mind, which is where all the practices are heading, uh, that emptiness has cognizing power. It's not just dumb silence. Or it's, it's often likened to space. But that image breaks down, because space is not particularly intelligent, whereas uh, the empty mind is, to put it mildly, brilliant, and also many other qualities. Um, particularly responsive, very, very able to respond adequately to what's happening. It's not just reserved for sitting. Um, this one can be connected. Uh, the problem, as I see it, is whether or not to give import to feelings in the practice. And then what's referred to as uh, Tibetan Rigpa path, where some, at least this characterization of it, believes that uh, you drop your feelings. They're not of much consequence. Uh, this is just one opinion, obviously. Everything I'm saying is just one opinion. Um, the, the most brief way I can put it is this, and I'm not an expert on Dzogchen. I sat a one-month retreat once with a lama some years ago. I've read a bit, but... Uh, so I'd like to make my remarks just a little bit more general than Dzogchen. Um, if you, there are certain paths, certain schools, think of it as sky and clouds. Uh, Vipassana is very cloud-oriented. We, we, cloud, we cloud things up. Now we're, <laughs> we're, we start with the clouds. Uh, these are the, the emotions, those are some of the clouds. 
the different mind states, the content. Um, and in the process of uh, being mindful uh, of mind states, and this question is mainly about feelings, but if you read further into it, it, it really means emotions, not just pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Um, the contrast is with other approaches which aim directly for the sky right away, certain Zen approaches uh, and uh, some of the Tibetan approaches go right for the sky. And my own sense is both are, they wind up in the same place, both have strengths and weaknesses. It's not the weakness of the teaching uh, so much as what we tend to do with it. Uh, personally, I feel that Vipassana is a bit safer. Uh, because you start with your with your stuff, and uh, if you keep doing this practice, uh, you have to rub up against the materials that make up your ordinary mind, because that's where we start. We don't start with the sky, and so there's a certain amount of self-knowledge. Some of it, I think, is quite similar to what people learn in psychotherapy, uh, or that any alert person would learn, uh, whether they're a meditator or not. Uh, if they pay attention, you know, to their experience. Uh, so that sounds very different than approaches that, in a sense, oh, that's just emotions, let's go right for the sky. But I don't think it is, because uh, more and more as you become familiar with all the different cloud formations, that's all the conditioned materials that, uh, that's what choiceless awareness is looking at, mainly to begin with, in Vipassana, you're encouraged to begin to see that they're all, they really are cloud-like. They arise, they pass away, they're evanescent. They're, li they're, li they're like clouds. They don't last. They're empty of any enduring substance, which doesn't mean they're not there or that they're a hallucination. It just means they're not there in the way in which we often think they are. We impute a kind of substantiality to them that they really don't have. And all you have to do is look closely Look at a cloud, but look at fear as well. Fear is made up of its energy moving through the mind and body. And if you look closely, uh, you'll see it's constantly changing, and at a certain point the fear uh, gets more intense, less intense, disappears, comes back. The point is it's not one solid thing that lasts forever, although at the time that it appears, and when some of you talk about it, uh, you don't, I mean, you're you definitely would not agree with what I'm saying. Uh, it's as if it's forever, that it's eternal. It's like uh, a mountain. It won't budge. Uh, it's impossible to be mindful of it and so forth. Um, so that as you get more and more familiarized with cloud formations, and of course as the quality of attention matures, you begin to see these mind formations or mental formations uh, they're impermanent and empty. They arise and pass away and they lack real substantiality. When that starts happening, the let, letting go, of course, starts to happen. There was one question, what you say the mind empties itself of its own content. That's all I mean. If you sit and observe what's happening, everything coming and going, uh, it's an invitation for what's in consciousness to start to come up, present itself, and be gone. And if you meet it with awareness, I mean, it's going to do that anyway, whether you're a meditator or not. Things are coming and going. But it's a question of whether it goes out hot or cold in Dharma language. 
going out hot means there's no awareness of it. There's identification and we get burned in the process very often. Going out cold means you're right with it. And you're not trying, letting go is not dropping it or throwing it away or pushing it away. It's often synonymous with just letting be. You just allow it to live out its life cycle and it liberates itself. And more and more uh, the materials that are in consciousness start coming to the surface, revealing themselves, telling their story, not necessarily in words, and then they're gone. And uh, that leads to a mind that becomes quieter and more spacious. Okay, so that's, and then we're at the sky. So in Vipassana, you tend to get to the sky by means of getting to know the clouds. But the danger there is there are people who have been practicing 10 years and they become, they're still obsessed with the clouds. And uh, psychologizing, analyzing, uh, I don't know, everything but framing the, the certain emotional states. I know I'm going to, I can feel the hate coming at me right now. <laughs> Uh, so you can get um, stuck on the level of the clouds and uh, uh, and not taste the fact that there's a clear blue sky that's always been there. It's not just in Dzogchen or Shikantaza, it's in the Buddha. The Buddha talks about the original nature of the mind being luminous. Everyone's mind, no one got shortchanged. Uh, the problem that I found in, I know much more about the Zen school because I was in a variety of different approaches to Zen for about nine years, um, is delusion. And I saw that in the one month I was on the Dzogchen retreat. Everyone's resting in Rigpa, which is like you know, empty mind, beautiful. And I looked at the people who were resting in Rigpa. And if that's Rigpa, I'll have a, min- a vanilla milkshake. <laughs> Uh, I don't think so. Uh, and so it's very easy. You pick up the coin of the realm, the vernacular, uh, and conceptual wisdom is not real wisdom. And it's easy to confuse the two. That is not the problem of Dzogchen. That's not, it's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. And, so, and it's not the problem of Soto Zen, of, of just sitting. Uh, or silent illumination, another very beautiful teaching, as is Vipassana. Uh, they do come to the same place. I think Joseph will be coming out with a book, which I think is going to be invaluable, uh, called One Dharma. And I think uh, I have some sense of what's in there. I think you'll find a very, very clear statement that's going to be helpful. Increasingly important, because everyone's studying with everyone else now, and the boundaries are, beca- are becoming blurred. You have to be careful about... Um, incoherence, where you just get confused, because some of the Buddhist school, they have the same name, Buddhism, it's spelled with a B, but it's as different as one is from Mars and the other is not from Venus, the other is from the, <laughs> <laughs> from the moon. Uh, they're just called Buddhism. But everything that, has, that is on, aligned with the Buddhist teaching has to do with the letting go of suffering, it has to do with the life of the practice of not clinging not cling to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. It's liberation from the self. Uh, so they, every practice has its uh, strengths and its possible places to get caught. Um, 
So I wouldn't, uh, it's, it's not that Vipassana loves the emotional life and Dzogchen doesn't. I don't know enough to, about Dzogchen to go further than what I've just said. Um, about daily life, just a few words. If you have questions about that, uh, to me, the most important thing uh, is not, you know, answers to questions like, should I sit two hours in the morning, two hours in the, in the evening, or 40, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes. Each school has its own formula. I don't know where 20 minutes comes from, or an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. Uh, maybe it's divine revelation. Uh, but uh, it's just clock time, as far as I can tell. Um, or other kinds of scheduling. and uh, To me, the key thing about daily life, assuming that you have a practice, and of course you should sit and try to sit every day. I mean, at this point, do I really have to say that? You know, honestly. You know, drink your milk, Johnny. <laughs> so you'll grow up big, big and strong, have good bones, you won't get osteoporosis. If you, I mean, try to sit, have a sitting, a regular sitting practice. But I feel attitude is crucial. Because what I see, it's very, very difficult to practice in, in daily life, so-called daily life. When we get back home, you know it is. And uh, the fact that I'm saying it's all one practice is not to uh, sugarcoat it and say that it's, it's a snap. It is not. Uh, but I see a few things that might be very, very helpful for us. One, uh, the main attitude is we really, in my opinion, lack conviction that real, genuine practice with vitality can happen in the ordinary situations that make up our daily life. And that down deep, this is really where it's at, sitting like Kim up there. He's our boss. It's the, it's the, it's the main icon. Wherever you go, there's someone sitting. And of course it's extraordinary. And if you get fixated on that, then uh, no matter how many times you hear and people say, bring the practice into daily life, mindfulness and all the posture you're bringing, uh, it doesn't have the power. We lack conviction. Uh, we lack interest. Or we're interested in daily life, but not the way a yogi would be. We want to make a lot of money. We want to score sexually. We want, sure, we're interested in daily life. We know how, you know, we know how to do that badly or wonderfully, but we've been at it. We have a lot of practice there. What I mean is bringing the same, the quality of attention into what you do. And uh, complaints like, uh, I'm, my life is too busy, I don't have time to practice. I don't see how we can say that if you have a, an understanding that, that life is practice and practice is life. I, I personally, I'm not crazy about the word practice, but we've inherited it because it has uh, the connotation of a, a bit of artificiality or like piano, you know, drill or dance, or, you know, just one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Uh, it starts out that way as a method, but really it's a way of living. And if it's going to be a good way of living for you, it, it has to become apparent that it's a way of living and that it's quite fulfilling, it's demanding, but it's also um, it's a wonderful way to live. Um, personally, if I found out that there never was a Buddha, 
that we've just that was just put together by at some think tank in Palo Alto or somewhere, <laughs> you know, that uh, the scriptures are all made up. Uh, no one ever got enlightened. There's no past life. There's never going to be a future life. This is it. The Marxists are right. Uh, you know what? I still keep doing this practice. Oh, sure, you're obsessed. You're a true believer. No. It's the best way I've found to live. What would be better? A life of unawareness? Not paying attention to how you live. Uh, just uh, being uh, distracted all the time, sloppy. Uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Distracted, uh, restless, and not caring. Just living without understanding what you're doing with yourself and with others. So for me, it's, just, it's but for it to have that kind of vitality, the essence of it is paying attention. And that's looking and listening, both inwardly and outwardly, and being willing, have, having, having the willingness, the interest to learn from what you see and hear, and then living what you understand. That's a very big one. Many of us know exactly what to do. So many questions that come up are, tell me how to do this one, and you know what the right action is. We, we very often do. And we can spend years not doing it, coping, stalling, putting up with it, being ambivalent. Why is that? Why do we betray our understanding? As the mind gets clearer, I think it gets harder to do that. Much harder. Uh, you know, it just, you see how you're living. Uh, and I would say another way of putting what, what I've just said and what the Buddha's been, what the Buddha's teaching saying, there was probably a real Buddha. You know, I was just kidding. Uh, um, is that he's giving us some, some guidelines so that we can learn how to live. Apparently, we don't know how to live. Apparently, even in, in 2,600 years ago, people didn't know how to live. Otherwise, why would there be a need for a Buddha? It was a, a, a desperate need then as well as there is now. And so, if you start paying attention, and there's some hints in terms of teachings and methods and so forth, forms like the one we've been using, but uh, f wisdom is meant to be lived. Uh, where's our philosopher guy? <laughs> uh, it's love of wisdom is great, but that love has to be translated into living wisdom. So that you are the wisdom. It's not if you you can quote Plato and Confucius until you're blue in the face, and maybe that impresses other people. But are you still impressed with knowing all that? I don't mean you. You know nothing personal. <laughs> I'm talking about myself. Well, I, all the time I am, I guess. Um, so the attitude is one of bringing care and interest to daily life, to not see it as less valuable than sitting. And of course, no, very few people would say that. It's just that, in effect, when you watch where the interest goes, we're voting with our bodies. We're not as interested. Or we've gotten wounded in daily life. We've gotten wounded at work relationship, sex, everything. And we come crawling into the meditation center like a uh, tent in combat. You know, it's a field hospital. <laughs> and, and we start getting healed. And at a certain point, you don't want to go back where the bombs are dropping. And, <laughs> you know, the people out there are crazy. They eat meat all the time. They vote for the wrong president. <laughs> you know.
I just want to be with nice, soft, gentle people who, you know, were like me, like carrots and sprouts and, you know, okay. And then this actually, we know, happens in the Army that unless you're really a fatal case, one of the skills, and uh, I was in the Medical Corps, one of the skills of the doctors and all who work in the Medical Corps is easing the person back into combat. Uh, you've had a nice uh, stay here and it's time to go back. You don't want to? Well, uh, either you go back or we shoot you. <laughs> it's simple. Okay. So you do it yourself, but you have to develop an attitude that, uh, you know, in a way, uh, if you say you love life, what does that mean? Does it exclude 90% of your day? I mean, it's living that, in a, in a sense, real worship is that. I mean, do you think it only goes on in a temple or a synagogue or a mosque or a church? That, uh, to me, is the art of living is, the, is probably the foremost art. It's the most difficult. And that's what wisdom is about. It's the art of how to live harmoniously, how to live in such a way as to not make so much trouble in the world for you and for those in your life. It's the supreme art. And... It's certainly, I don't, I, I may be the most difficult, but it's certainly one that uh, it needs some practitioners, and that's us. You know, we're doing it. We're beginning to do that. Self-knowing is crucial. If you don't get to know yourself, how can you ha live a happy, developed life? It's not just in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, and not understanding why you're doing in, out, in, out, in, out. It's what Karada was saying the other day. You know, you have a timer, you sit there, in, out, in, out, in, out, boop, and your sitting's over. You make a check, you're a spiritual person, then you go on and uh, rob, steal, and lie for the rest of the day. Just kidding. I don't know what you're doing. What questions do you have? I, you know, it needn't be about daily life, but if it is, I, I'd be happy to do my best with them. Please. Do you mean sitting meditation? Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> the Buddha gave very good advice to his son, Rahula. Uh, one, now this is kind of, uh, it's sort of textbookish. It's life is much more dynamic and fast and not so easy to do this, but it's not a bad thrust. Before you act, Reflect on your action. Maybe it's just a second or two. Sometimes we don't have more time than that. Uh, is it beneficial for you and others, or is it harmful? If it's harmful, don't do it. If it's beneficial, do it. Then you start to act, whether it's verbal or physical. And uh, maybe you've concluded it is beneficial for myself and for others. And then you start to live. And in the midst of it, you see that it really isn't. I thought it was. But look, I'm hurting someone. I'm hurting myself. Stop. Learn how to stop. Apologize if it's, if it's you that's begun to cause this. Uh, extricate yourself. It's, and uh, learn. And, and then the third is after it's over. Even if it's over, let's say it seems beneficial and you're done with it. And then sometime after, reflect back, was it really beneficial? So there is value in after-the-fact reflection. And 
how do you catch it more quickly so it is you don't spend your whole life just reviewing your past? Yeah, no, I understand. But that's what practice is. That's what we're practicing, is learning. In other words, it's this moment. And that's part of what I meant by interest. If you're interested in learning how to live, uh, it really can be quite joyful. It's quite an adventure. It's quite a challenge. These, I know these are corny words, but um, rather than medicinal, sometimes, uh, uh, well, it's, some of the questions are, t- are too medicinal for me. You know, it's sort of like, I, I have a, a fungus. What herb do I put on it to stamp it out? Um, it's about living, you know, so that awareness can help. It's interesting to see how we live. It's not just to keep fixing things. We get obsessed with problems. We're incredibly problem-oriented. And when you're very problem-oriented, then you're very solution-oriented. And if you're very solution-oriented, you're not as interested in what is, because what is is the problem. And yet what the teachings are saying is the best solution is not jumping over the problem, but into and through the problem comes something that can be truly beneficial. Uh, so I don't have a formula for it, but, but also as practice matures, uh, you, you more and more do keep up with the moment, and then you lose it and you come back. And it's true, we spend so much of our life in the, in the future and in the past, but uh, part of what practice is is starting to more and more inhabit the present moment. Yeah. Please. Is this an unrelated question? When you say other, okay. When you say noting, do you mean the technical method known as noting, or you? Okay, I. I I'll just tell you what little I know. That's not been my practice, but I do know a little bit about it. Okay, but they're really, it, it's, it's all the way. The first part, uh, at the beginning of practice, which can be years, whether we like it or not, we are mainly interested in the content. Now, <clears throat> it can be a, a dramatic turning point in practice when, you, when the teaching of impermanence finally sinks in. Because... In order to really see the arising and passing away of everything, in the Anapanasati Sutra, for example, there are 16 contemplations. One way of interpreting the 13th, which says, seeing all formations, mental and physical, as impermanent. That means uh, all 12 contemplations that preceded it, which basically cover the mind, uh, the body, feelings, and all the mind states, beginning to see that each and every one of them arises and passes away, and out of that comes, and it's also empty. Okay. Now, if you're preoccupied with content, hooked on content, and, and I think to begin with, we are. Okay. So it's, you, it's very difficult to really do that impermanent stuff because we're too interested in the content. At a certain point, it's a, it can be a turning point in practice for some. It was for me, uh, where it shifts more into process, where you become really interested that in that 
independent of what the content is, it all arises and passes away. It's very powerful when you apply it to thinking. Sometime try it. Every thought, no matter how interesting, boring, loving, hating, it's all whoop, gone, whoop, gone. Uh, to begin with, you could hear the instructions and understand them, very difficult to do. Okay, but let's back up now. Can the content be useful uh, when it's repetitive, particularly? Yes, it can, uh, because sometimes when something is repetitive, not always, but I, I have found the high proportion of the time, uh, it's pointing to daily life. It's point or something in life that needs to something that you're doing that it's time to stop. You're not stopping. You keep doing it, but it's off, and so it keeps pounding away, knocking on the door. Stop, stop. We don't. So it's recurrent. It's going to. It hasn't been resolved. It has not been taken care of. Or something that we're not doing that needs to be done, and that's pretty obvious too. And uh, then that is recurrent because so it, it can be a link between the cushion and the daily and daily life. It can be a very sensitive indicator that that you can't solve everything just sitting on the cushion. Some of it is saying, you know, you do have to tell your boss what you think, or else work with all that resentment and let it go if you're not going to. But cycling around again and again and again and again for years. Uh, no wonder it comes up in the mind, because it's not resolved. It's not taken care of. Um, the second part, mental note, help me. Uh, you know, at a, in, when choiceless awareness, because that's what we've been teaching, that's what I know a little bit about, when that ripens, you're not that interested in, in what, your, what underlies your question. I don't think so. Because uh, we're going towards blue sky. We don't have to endlessly catalog all, you know, cumulonimbus cloud, and then there's this cloud and that cloud. Uh, that's much more interesting at the beginning. Um, at the beginning, the practice, one way of looking at it, it has a lot to do with the question, who am I? All spiritual life seems to... Uh, be pointing towards that. Anything that has self-knowledge, and of course, who am I? And to begin with, I would say a lot of what we're interested in is very similar to um, what most people think of as self-knowledge. That is, you find out stuff about the self, yourself. Okay, uh, and even in action, the self is constantly revealing itself in interaction, human interaction. So, in that sense, you start seeing some of your fears really accepting them or acknowledging that, you know, I really have been afraid of, of this for quite a while. So that level of self-knowledge, a lot of it is done in psychotherapy, sometimes beautifully, is, I think, quite valuable. Okay, so that's finding out who you are. As the practice goes on and you, and you uh, start to move towards sky, self-knowledge is more finding out who you aren't. It's not so interesting to endlessly refine and uh, categorize in an increasingly more subtle, precise, and sophisticated way who you think you are. It turns out that what's much more uh, fascinating, valuable, and that's what is to find out that you're none of this stuff in a profound way. That now we're starting to talk about absolute truth, not relative. You see what I'm getting at? Now, so it's not such an easy answer because 
what I have seen is some people who have disdain for ordinary self-knowledge. I saw it in the Zen tradition, and that's what I meant. If you if you're an express train to the sky, not a train, but you know the metaphors of it. <laughs> Maybe they'll figure out a way to do that. Amtrak is going broke. I don't know. Um, One possibility, if you break through at a very deep level, then I think so much stuff is, I don't know that it necessarily matters that much. But for most of us, I don't think you can short circuit or skip over uh, some, some minimal basic understanding of how your mind works, how you treat people, uh, just very ordinary self-knowledge. Ordinary, I don't mean to, to diminish it. I mean that most people would accept as it. Most people would not accept uh, would feel it would be strange. I don't mean spiritual practitioners. If you say that none of this is you, I mean that would sound crazy. Okay. So I think it becomes less interesting. Your stuff, the story of me and my life, starring me. Uh, how much more can we do? Take of that stuff. <laughs> what a lot, endless keep revising it and bringing it up to date and adding new chapters. And, uh, I saw Gama doing five times. I walked out in the fifth, in the middle of the fifth. We're still at it thousands of times. He said, she said, no one talks to me that way. Monday I'll tell him. What, you know. uh, uh, talking to ourselves in ways that make us feel good and important and, and handsome and beautiful and, uh, you know, just the mind constantly reassuring itself that it's okay. It's not okay. It's never going to be okay. You know, we're trying to think our way through to some kind of sanity, as if thoughts could do it. Thought is the problem. So, you know, it's okay to use it a bit, but so you see where my answer is. I, I'm not so thrilled with endlessly more sophisticated thinking about what's happening to us. Please. Yes. I know the chant. <laughs> What's that? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jane, what? Yes. Would we try to teach something that's pie in the sky? Yeah. No, what that is, that's the highest teaching. Well, are you asking, does anyone ever come to it? There's a whole library. For, you know, uh, do people, let's say, ordinary people like us, taste it? Yes. That, it's about that. It's about awakening. It's not about endlessly seeing everything arise and pass away, arise and pass away for the rest of your natural life. Uh, maybe a metaphor would help. Uh, but it, it, all images break down because the last part is talking about the, that which is immeasurable and uh, inconceivable. You can't really make a concept about it, but... And the Buddha didn't talk about it very much at all, because he was wise. 
Um, this is just a little bit. Let's say if you if you focus on waves, uh, then your uh, waves are arising and passing away all the time. Let's say you are a wave. This is a kind of silly example, but it's the best I can do right now. Uh, so let's say a wave is is uh, is uh, what is it cresting? Any surface here? You know, it's kind of it's, it's emerging, and it looks around. It sees some waves are bigger than it. Some waves are smaller. It sees some waves earlier on crashing into the beach. My God, I, you know, I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, and then uh, then it takes a vipassana retreat, <laughs> and it realizes I was the ocean all along. The you know, it's the fine. It's okay. Not too convincing, is it? <laughs> because we're not water. What? What? Encouragement for what, Jane? You have to start with the world as you know it, at least in this practice. That's what we, we always start where we are. Everything else would be imagination. It would be idealization. And where we are, it feels very much like it's a relative world of conditions that come and go. Uh, tremendously subject to time and so forth. Um, you can't get ahead of yourself. The Buddha taught on both levels relative and absolute. A lot of the teachings that are given are on the relative level. Uh, and it's not, it's not that it's inferior, it seems to be necessary. Uh, so that uh, it brings us along. But at a certain point, uh, that starts to uh, outlive its usefulness. And if you get a taste of something uh, that you could call absolute truth, then it's an everything is changed for you from that point on. But you're getting, I'm, I may be wrong, but it sounds like you're getting too caught up in the concepts. Uh, pay attention to your life, and all of this comes out of your life. It's not up in the sky. Absolute truth is not you know, way up there. It's not up there. Uh, there's one teaching, a very high teaching of Dogen, uh, there's actually a book on it which refers to uh, impermanence is nirvana. Now, to an to a orthodox, rigid Theravadan, that would sound like anathema. How could impermanence be nirvana? Uh, impermanence is here and nirvana is there. That's a, more, a teaching that's much more accessible to the mind as it already is. But to me, it's just obvious that, of course, nirvana is exactly where, where delusion is. It's not somewhere else. So whatever it is you want, it's here. You start here. What is, is uh, someone once asked one of my teachers, uh, is there anything sacred? And how do you, and what is what is sacred? No, they asked him if there's anything sacred. And he said, what is, is. That is, whatever we're talking about, the only way to come to it, certainly in this practice, I can't speak beyond it, is through Familiarity, intimacy with what is. Okay, it's the best I can do right now. Please.
it's not, it's just impossible, that's all, it's not crazy. Uh, maybe someone is doing it right now in some virtual reality or... I'm sorry. Walk, walk us through someone who's trying to live the practice. Uh, I don't think it... Yeah, but what, I, what Carrado and I have been trying to do is to start right here. Uh, I don't think uh, that life outside is so very different from life here. It's just life. Daily life is everywhere. It's just life. We make up, I'm on intensive practice, I'm going into yogi land. That's in the mind. There's no yogi land. <laughs> if it makes you happy, because you're working, you know, you're a cook and you're tired of it already, I'm going into yogi land. What a relief. What? You, you move from one... Okay, it's, I can't do any better than what I'm about to say. You move from one situation to the next. You exhale what you're done with so that you make room to give your, your best. You bring the, the most sensitivity and awareness and interest to what's next. And then at a certain point that ends. And then you bring it to what's next. And along the way, we fall down many, many times. Uh, a, 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 an example might be, think of it in terms of trains. I'm back finally to the train. Um, two tracks. Mind track and Dharma track. Most of us have been living deeply in the mind track. That's the train that's... You know, we're, we're, we're traveling around inside the mind and all of its production. Okay. Dharma introduces a new track. There's a track right next to it. In those moments when we're aware, without attachment, that is, we're mindful without pushing away or clinging, the train suddenly is on the Dharma track. Okay. And then when we fall asleep again, it goes back into the mind track. And then... So practice is more and more uh, moving that train on, in, on the Dharma track, taking it out of the mind. So you're not living your entire life, uh, as some would say, in its delusion. You, you think that the production of the mind is what, what is really real. Well, what it is, it's a concoction. It's a contrivance manufactured by the mind brilliantly. So uh, it's not... So I don't have any special thing to say except you live your life out, your life just the way it is. You don't have to change one thing or if you see that it needs to be changed by all means. And you live and you learn. Uh, life is the great teacher if you invite it to teach you. In other words, you have to, and that's attention. You have to pay, you have to make contact, pay attention, and then it teaches you. And then, and Dharma are words, intelligent words, I feel, that are trying to help you, uh, move through this with, in a much more harmonious and sane way. I don't think I can do better than that. So it's falling down, getting up, falling down, getting up. Mostly it's falling down. You know what can be uh, interesting, in, uh, an inspiring metaphor? Or I don't know if it's a metaphor. Is it a, is what you tell me if it's a metaphor. We have some good literary people here. Uh, about a year ago or so, I watched... Uh, friend's child who was just at that age when they start to try to stand up and walk and they walk and fall down they walk and fall down they walk and fall down they walk and I was watching with amazement they weren't whining they weren't saying oh I just keep falling down I, you know I, I'm never going to learn how to walk you know there's a smile on the child's face no matter how many times it fell down it just gets up and walks again and falls down gets up and walks falls down uh, and no problem then it grows up to be like us. Other people are walking faster than me. 
you know, how come I'm always falling out? I'll never learn how to walk. Of course you won't. You just, you already guaranteed that. You made, I can't walk, so that's what you have. So attitude is so important. You know, it's sort of, uh, I feel we shouldn't use spiritual practice as an escape from life because we're in it. If you can get away with that, great. I can't. So that means we have to learn, we have to just jump in, for goodness sakes, and, and learn from it. We have a lot of fear of all kinds of things. Sometimes, very often, that's what brings us to spiritual practice. Well, spiritual practice keeps you there and gets you into safer and safer pleasant places and so that you never deal with what's going on. I think you'll find it limited after a while. So all I'm saying is, whatever your life is, live it and learn, though. It will change if you're willing to learn because life keeps teaching you and out of that comes uh, all kinds of things that you can't uh, anticipate. Mysteries that, you know, surprises, both pleasant and not so pleasant. But the surprises are here anyway. Um, last one, please. Sure. Not being what? I said that? But I, I don't know, remember my saying that, so it's hard for me to... But no, I want to know what she, how she means it. How do you mean it? Yes. Well, that's a very... No, that's a very important question. I mean, they all are, but uh, one that I feel I can try to answer, I think it's important. The ones that I can't answer too well, I don't think... You know. <laughs> um, we read a book or a teacher tells us about mindfulness to observe you know, your experience, your breath, bodily sensation, you know, the stuff that we practice with in Vipassana. We all read it, we talk, we see, oh, mindfulness, it's non-judgmental, it can only happen in the present moment, it's not thinking, it's non-conceptual, it's like a clear, clean mirror. Fine, and then we all set about doing it. Uh, to begin with, I think inescapably, in doing it, our psyche intervenes a lot. That is, we really, if someone asks, what are you doing? I'm practicing mindfulness. Uh, what is, I'm, I am getting to what you, to your question, it seemed to be gradations of, of what can happen as practice uh, matures. So at first, inescapably, our, the quality of our seeing is compromised by our psychological tendencies, our likes and dislikes and avoidances and so forth. I don't see how we can be otherwise. Uh, but with encouragement, we begin to see that that is also the subject of mindfulness itself, and it starts uh, clarifying itself, so that the mirror starts becoming a lot clearer. It's not, so, it, it's not as much influenced by yesterday, yesterday being all of our accumulated experiences, wounds and successes and failures and conditionings and upbringing and all that, and more and more, because in, in real mindfulness, uh, there's, um, there's just clear seeing. Okay. So, uh, but there's still an observer. 
And that's maybe getting to what, what you mean. And um, it's very, very helpful. Uh, to even, even this is very, very helpful. Some people think that the instructions are say, talking about detachment. Personally, I don't think so. And uh, there are some who do. I don't. Uh, I think it's about non-attachment. It's a kind of participant observation. That is, it's a lot you're receiving, you're opening up to, rather than pulling back from. It's not looking at fear from a mountaintop with binoculars. It's actually uh, allowing fear in. It's the intimacy you're talking about. But to begin with, there is a bit of separation because there, the observer is, that's essentially, it's still, it's the ego that's now uh, decked out as a meditator, you know, as an observer. It's a very subtle form of ego, but it's the same character that's been with us for a long time. Okay? And that subtle separation keeps it from being the real clear seeing, which is timeless, has nothing to do with the past. Uh, it's fresh. Even if you've had a certain, ex let's say you've had fear a thousand times in the past of a certain kind, uh, without training, you look at the present instance of fear, there's a bit of coloration from your from the fact that you, you've had fear so many times, that kind of fear. And maybe even the word fear is there, which judges it a bit. The day can come where the sense of the observer withers away quite naturally. And that's when you hear in uh, talks and in books, uh, there's uh, seeing without a seer. Uh, or when you're doing walking meditation, maybe you've had it sometimes, it's so beautiful, like ballet, like dance, where there's just the walking, and it's what was called doerless doing. There's no one doing the walking. Or with the breath, sometimes it feels, that was your example, it feels as if you're being breathed. And one of my teachers asked me, well, who's breathing? And I said, I am. And he said, that's just a thought. Find this I am. And so once I looked for it, it was unfindable. And so, uh, and those are happy times. The reason they're happy times is because we're not there. I think we, could we have a few moments of silence? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation.